0: radio.ie hosts the irish history show podcast because history matters radio turns 100 years young this year radio's history is powered by radio archives for radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio visit radio.ie
1: Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. If you get a chance, please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story, so if you enjoy reading the articles on the Irish Story or our podcast here on the Irish History Show, please consider supporting us on the Patreon, and we really do appreciate it. There's a link in the show notes. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of the show on irishhistoryshow.ie. The podcast is available on all the podcast apps like iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you could take a moment to rate and review the show, we would really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Please let us know what you think of the episodes as we really love to get your feedback. On this episode, it's just me and John, and for the first time in a very long time, since the start of COVID, we're actually sitting together and recording this. Yeah, it's just like old times, Carl. Just like old times, so we have our cups of tea here, and we're going to get into it. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the executions during the Civil War, and you've been on quite a few shows and writing some articles at the moment, and newspaper articles about this, haven't you, John?
0: Yeah. I was on RTE and I had a series of articles in the Cork Examiner about, or the Examiner as it's now known, Mm -hmm. sorry, about this topic. And, you know, it's a fairly bleak and depressing topic. And one might wonder in some ways why we are bringing it up again and again. But it is the centenary. And I think it might surprise people in some ways that this topic has not been really very well researched until very recently. Like, even the legalities of it, that like the legal framework in which the executions happened, has only very recently been researched. Some of the files were destroyed way back in the 1930s, but others were only opened very recently. So there is a lot that is relatively new to say about the executions of the
1: Civil War, be they a very bleak and depressing topic in many ways. Well, that is the thing. If we were going to talk about executions during the Civil War, we should really talk about sort of the history of executions during this period and the revolutionary era. Going from, famously, the executions after the 1960 and rising, but also during the Anglo-Irish War, the War of Independence, or the Tan War, whatever you want to call it, how the British say how they went about executing Republicans. Yeah, I
0: mean, I think you should even go back a little bit further. So, you know, if you go all the way back to 1798, which was the largest insurrection in Ireland before the revolutionary period, there was a lot of executions. And I'm not sure at all about the legal framework there. I'm not sure there needed to be much. But in the course of the 19th century, the British state actually used executions after rebellions quite sparingly. So they were quite nervous and cautious about doing it. So, for example, after the Young Ireland Rebellion of 1848, all the leaders were sentenced to death, but it was commuted and they were transported to Australia. And the same is true after the Fenian Rebellion of 1867. So lots of people are sentenced to death, but none of them in Ireland were actually executed. Now, three were executed in England, famously in Manchester. For shooting a policeman while they were trying to free a prisoner but these became world famous certainly very famous in ireland as the manchester martyrs and this was what the british government was obviously very cautious and afraid of because they were aware of the power of martyrdom in an irish context so when you come to the irish revolutionary period this is the heritage that the british government has or the legacy that they have the outlier as you just said there cahill is 1916 because in 1916 there's martial law there's a military man in charge general maxwell and his attitude is well we execute as many as we can and it's he's very much going on colonial precedent there rather than irish so maxwell actually drew up a list of 90 names and he was working through them and he shot 16 of them or shot 15 rather famously roger Casement was hanged later until the prime minister asquith said wait how many are you planning to shoot and he said oh 90 for now and he said, no, 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 stop. You know, this is this is Ireland. We can't do it. We have to do it a bit differently here than we could do it somewhere like in Africa or in India or the Middle East and so on. So the 16 who were executed in 1916, of course, became the most famous martyrs, probably, of the Republican tradition. And, you know, the fact of execution becomes almost a badge of pride. You know, they went to their deaths bravely. They went like lions, some people said. And although... It might have got exaggerated over time the executions of the 1916 leaders really did feed into the growth of the republican movement afterwards now there was other things like the conscription crisis the fact that home rule was never delivered the first world war and so on but executions were a big deal certainly in building the mythology of the new republican movement when you get to the war of independence or the anglo-irish war the black and tan war the british are again quite cautious about using the executions so if you look at for example Kevin Barry who was one of the first to be executed the first to be executed formally in the war of independence period he has a military court martial and he has a defense like he, he actually he has the right to a defense but Kevin Barry forewent it if that's the right grammar and later on they execute people in a more summary way in the martial law area in Cork it just needs you know there's a secret military hearing and people don't get a defense but in Dublin to the end of the War of Independence, the Republican lawyer Michael Noyk defends them, and he gets some people off, some people he doesn't get off. But there were 20 executions during the War of Independence, uh, some by hanging, the ones in the martial law area in the south by firing squad. But had the War of Independence continued onwards, you know, the British were very nervous uh, about applying full colonial methods in Ireland. But the plan was that Ireland would be ruled by a crown colony if the war restarted. And McCready, who's the Commander-in-Chief, says, well, that means 100 executions every month. You know, So this is the way they would have done it elsewhere, I think, to be honest. But in practice, they were actually relatively sparing about using executions
1: in the War of Independence. Well, it's funny, as you mentioned there, Kevin Barry. Like Kevin Barry is the big name that we remember yeah. for being executed during the War of Independence. We don't tend to remember the other people who were executed.
0: Yeah, the Forgotten Ten they were christened later yeah. for that reason, you know.
1: Yeah, whereas when we think about Civil War executions we know an awful lot of their names. We were pretty sure on the numbers we thought it was 77 now it's 81. The Civil War executions live in the memory a lot stronger than the War of Independence memories.
0: That's interesting, yeah. It's kind of true. I mean, at the time it was the opposite, you know. So, like, in Dublin in March of 1921 there was a number of Republicans I think it was Three or four uh, were executed in Mountjoy jail. And there was massive crowds outside, and there was a one-day general strike. And there was an ambush in Pier Street later on in the day. But there was massive public outcry. You know, the city had a general strike, which is no small thing. And and that kind of, yeah, it fell out of the public memory for some reason. Why is hard to say, actually, it's kind of an interesting point. But certainly in the post. Civil War Republican movement, the anti treaty Republican movement, the executions of the Civil War are a central kind of founding element, you know. So, they certainly in that tradition remember the Civil War executions, particularly more
1: so than the ones even before the truce. Now, you touched on it there, talking about like military courts and stuff, but if we were to discuss the legality, back in this period when Ireland's part of the United Kingdom, there is a death penalty for a whole range of different things. And uh, it's not unusual for people to be convicted of crimes like uh, murder to be executed. But how does that differ in the context of a war?
0: Yeah, you're quite right that the death penalty is a routine thing in those days. There aren't that many hangings in Ireland in peacetime, but that's because there weren't that many murders, really. So if if you were convicted of murder, you got the death penalty. And so there would be a number of hangings, you know, every year. What's different in, in a period of insurrection, though, is that essentially... To have a trial by jury and convict somebody of a political crime in Ireland is very difficult, and the British knew this. So throughout the nineteenth century in Ireland, normal courts would be suspended. Habeas corpus, which is the right to trial by jury and not to not to be arrested without evidence, is suspended all the time. You know, and there's a series of coercion acts from the eighteen twenties, the year of the Tithe War, through the Land War and everything like that. So suspending jury trials is a part of British rule in Ireland. And you replace these with various things, but ultimately with military tribunals is what they come up with in the War of Independence and the Easter Rising. So the context here is it's not quite martial law, or at least martial law is only partially declared in part of the country, but the military is going to handle trials of a political nature. Now, even within that, there's a difference. So in most of the country, you have a military trial, but they have a right to a legal defense and it's carried out in public in the martial law area where the military has been put in charge of the civil administration. There's no defence and it's a secret trial and they're shot by firing squad. So it's it's military punishment. So that's the context, that's the precedent for for the death penalty in times of what was known as
1: insurrection in Ireland. I think most people nowadays, when they think about the death penalty, they think about places like the United States. And if they see somebody get executed, it's like after 15 years of appeals and it's gone through all these different uh, stages, and the governor has finally rejected an appeal for clemency. But when we see people being executed during this period, you could be executed the next morning. Oh,
0: yeah, I mean, that's and that's true in Britain as well, you know, and I, I, it's probably true in most of your other European countries too. So nowadays in Europe, I, we like to pretend we're so much nicer than the Americans, for example, and countries that have the death penalty. But that wasn't the case back then. The death penalty was a fact of life. What was unusual in Ireland was... This tradition of insurrection and various techniques of putting it down, though, that was not common in Britain. So there had been Insurrection Acts and so on in Britain, but they hadn't been commonly deployed for this simple reason that there hadn't been that many rebellions in Britain uh, in the 19th and certainly not in the 20th century.
1: So if we move forward now, we move to the period where the treaty has been passed by the Doll, And according to the treaty, you're going to have a period where there'll be a provisional government running things. And then a year after the treaty is signed the Free State will officially come into being. So what is the legal situation? And this gets very grey and very murky. What is the legal situation in Ireland leading up to this?
0: You have this weird period after the treaty was signed, Carl, and you know this, where no one is quite sure what the law exactly is. So it's a big fudge. The Irish interpretation of the treaty or the Irish Republican interpretation of the treaty is it's a treaty between two sovereign states and the second Doll approved the treaty. And... According to the pro-treaty narrative, anyway, the second doll has been melded into the institutions of the new Free State via the Provisional Government. So what that would mean that the authority of the land is the second doll and whatever legislation they had approved. Now the British conception of it is quite different. That the assembly that matters is the Parliament of Southern Ireland, which was created in the Government of Ireland Act, that any law that was passed in ireland previously is still in effect that the courts and all of british ruled ireland are still in effect and not the Doll courts which were the ones set up by the republican counter state 1920 and 21 and the authority in charge is the provisional government which is just a handover government from southern ireland which is under the government in westminster to the government of the irish free state which is a dominion now it's, you know, uh, political compromise probably requires fudge, but there's this results in an awful lot of confusion. And just for example, so you have two Supreme Courts in Ireland in this time. So you have the Doll Court, which is the revolutionary, if you like, Republican Dáil Courts, headed by a man called Dermot Crowley. He's the Supreme Justice. He had been in jail during the War of Independence. And you have the Supreme Court in Dublin of the British system in Ireland. Which one is the true one? Nobody's quite sure. You have a rival system of courts and people are using both. Now, in the course of the Civil War, one of these, the Doll Courts, gets wound up, as we'll talk about. And the other one, which is the descendant of the British court system, that gets that's the one that gets adopted. But in terms of legality, it's not all that clear which law or whose law is really in place, certainly in the first half of
1: 1922. Well, we did a whole episode about the Doll Courts, and it is fascinating. It's a really, really interesting subject that the revolutionary Irish Republic government that came into effect after the 1918 general election when the Sinn Fein MPs who were elected set themselves up as a separate parliament as TDs, but they have their own separate uh, legal system then under the doll. So interestingly, there would have been a lot of pro-treaty TDs who still see themselves as Republican and still see this as the stepping stone argument. How did they reconcile the type of things that you're talking about? that under this new dispensation you sort of invalidates all those other things they've been claiming in terms of like you know that this is that the republic of ireland exists that it has its own separate legal system under the the doll how do they reconcile these type of ideas or do they or do they manage to well it's it's tricky and it upset a
0: lot of people but i mean generally speaking you know there's this fudge that they they carry on through the first half of 1922 constructive ambiguity it was referred to in a later decade of irish peace processes, peace processes. when the dull courts were finally wound up it's under the pressure of civil war so the outbreak of civil war changes everything it forces the people who are pro-treaty to just cleave to the line the government line which is articulated by kevin o'higgins and he says look the dull courts were just a tactic and um, they were inefficient they were corrupt now there can only be one legal system in the country and it's going to be the legally established one kevin o'higgins himself is a barrister by training but it did upset a lot of people so for example george gavin duffy resigned over this because the supreme court of the dull courts under dermot crowley was shut down because they demanded the release of prisoners under a writ of habeas corpus so the prisoners who'd been taken in the four courts were just imprisoned by the military there wasn't any charge and when dermot crowley who was the supreme justice ordered them to be released he was arrested and George Cavan Duffy resigned from the government in protest over that. So there was a certain amount of discontent over this, but basically the outbreak of civil war forces people to cleave to the side that they chose. So in the case of the pro-treaty side, you have various tendencies of people who, a lot of people on the pro-treaty side who viewed themselves as stepping stone, Republicans and so on, but this is the side that they chose. They said that the free state is the only game in town, the treaty is the only game in town, and the government must do what it has to
1: do to defend it. Well, that's the same too you mentioned there with the, uh, the attack on the four courts, and whether it's accurate or not to describe it as the start of the civil war. You could have that whole debate, but if we use that as a starting point, really, and that does a lot of the things we're going to talk about regarding executions and legalities, does spring from the attack on the four courts. When the new provisional government finds itself prosecuting a war, against its opponents, the anti-treaty rights. How does legality enter into all this in terms of the powers that they will have to prosecute that war? Yeah, I mean, the thing about legality is, you know, in the end, it's kind
0: of a relative concept. So, for example, Kevin O'Higgins said, with regard to the executions, in the end, all government is based on force. And even the Supreme Court of the Free State They passed a ruling saying uh, Suprema Lex Salut Populi, which means the supreme law is the safety of the public. In other words, the government can set aside normal laws in order to win the civil war because it's a threat to the state. So, you know, a certain amount of it is kind of academic, I suspect. But the government's position is that the provisional government is there under the treaty. The second Doll approved the treaty. There was an election and the pro-treaty side won the majority of the vote. Now the third doll elected in June 1922 was never allowed to meet when the four courts was attacked. And so when it did meet in September of 1922 after Michael Collins was killed and and so on, because Michael Collins wanted to prorogue the doll until after the Civil War. Yes, there's a pro treaty majority and that's their position, that we are the elected government, we have the legal right to govern, the people who are against us are defying the will of the people. And so the full rigours of the state what the state can be can brought to bear in them must be brought to bear because otherwise they will bring down the state into a state of anarchy and everything that we achieved under the treaty will be lost that's their position so in one way they're saying we are the legally elected government and we're going to act within the law on the other hand they're saying we're going to do because we are the legitimate power in ireland we're going to do whatever it takes to win the civil war be it legal or otherwise and they at various times they actually say this quite openly But it is a contradiction, you know.
1: Well, when the doll finally does meet, the (coughs) third doll, what legislation do they propose in terms of giving themselves these legal powers to prosecute the war?
0: Right. Well, one thing you have to appreciate, though, is when the Civil War broke out, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith and Richard Maccahy, who's the military commander, they thought it'd be over in in a week. You know, they thought it'd be over when they dealt with these people in the forecourts who were an extremist faction. And that didn't happen. You know, so Civil War broke out around the country. So then the next job is they have to take back the towns and the cities around the country, particularly in Munster, which they did, you know, by the first week of August. And they thought it was over then. But then, you know, the anti-treaty IRA resorts to guerrilla warfare, which it turns out they're much better at than conventional warfare. And the civil war drags on and on. So the thing that they thought would be over in a week is dragging on into months. And the policy of the anti-treaty IRA under Liam Lynch is to drag it out specifically as long as possible to target all the sinews of government, be it the infrastructure, be it tax, be it preventing them from setting up a police force, the civic guard, preventing the government departments from functioning, to bring down the state in this way by a process of kind of attrition. And the government realises that this is beginning to work. So they're spending loads of money. They have to recruit tens of thousands of people into the army. They can't collect taxes in many rural areas and so on. And they realise they have to bring this to an end. And also another thing to bear in mind is in the field... What you find, actually, is that their troops, the National Army, are suffering more casualties than the people they call the irregular, certainly in terms of killed. Now, there's more anti-Treatyites being arrested. But in the field, the National Army is taking out reprisals of its own. So by the figures Republicans have compiled over the decades, there have been over 40 prisoners killed in the field by September 1922 by the pro-Treaty soldiers
1: this is surrendered prisoners
0: it's a mixture so it's pe- some people are assassinated they're sold out and assassinated some people are finished off while wounded some people are prisoners and then they're killed as prisoners yeah there's there's a there's a mixture i mean in two cases actually in Emmett Dalton down in Cork and a guy called Martin Hogan uh, who was based in Kerry they had actually formally executed people which no real legal sanction at all but Emmett Dalton had executed a soldier for giving arms to the to the anti-treatyites martin Hogan had executed held some sort of trial kangaroo court i suppose down in Kerry, and executed a man called lawler but the government said we need to a reimpose discipline over our forces and we need to do something to crush this campaign to bring it to an end in september 22 they bring before the doll what they call the public safety act now again i think we've been through this before in this show but the provisional government can't pass new legislation so under the free state's constitution legislation comes from the king and it needs the assent the royal assent by the governor general there's no governor general yet The Free State isn't formally set up at all until December the 7th, 1922, etc, etc. In any case, the government basically just plows ahead anyway. Technically, legally speaking, it's resolution of the doll, so it's not found in the statute book today. But the Public Safety Act says anybody bearing arms or assisting someone bearing arms against the state can face the death penalty and they will have a military trial. So it is in line with previous British practice. Now, which is understandable because it's the only precedent that they have. Now, there is a stay of execution, to mix my metaphors, for two months. So they passed this in September uh, of 22. There's nobody executed in September. and There's nobody executed in October. And the anti-treatyites don't really think that they're serious, I think. You know, in the dull, they got a certain amount of pushback. So the Labour Party, not too keen about this. And Thomas Johnson says you can't just give power, life and death to people who have only just recruited into an army with no training, let alone legal training. The anti-treatyites don't really think that they're serious. But November of 22, they decide to show that they're in earnest and they execute the first four in
1: Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. Who are those people that they executed?
0: Well, there are four young IRA, anti-treaty IRA members in Dublin and uh, I think two of them are still in their teens and two of them are in their early 20s. You know, they were captured bearing arms and they were shot the next week, I think. You know, they're really very summary process. The trial was held in Wellington Barracks and that the records of all these trials were destroyed later on. So we don't have any record of that. But the relatives found out the morning after they were executed. So they were executed early in the morning. And in one case, you know, the mother said she was going down to the post office to post her son in jail. A food parcel. And she saw a sign, a newspaper sign saying he'd been executed. It has enormous kind of shocking force, I think. The first executions. I mean, I don't think anyone
1: really expected them to do it. Well, this leads on to these preliminary executions. Yeah. Lead on to a much more famous set of executions. And probably the most famous set of executions during the Civil War. Yeah, so Erskine Childers,
0: who had been a particular hate figure on the pro-treaty side, possibly, I think, because... Well, there's a number of reasons. So Erskine Childers was born in England and he was an Anglo-Irish, kind of Protestant type, and people like Arthur Griffith had always said he's not one of us, kind of thing. And secondly, I mean, Childers had been the secretary in the treaty delegation, and although he wasn't a plenipotentiary, he had kind of really urged his cousin Robert Barton and George Gavin Duffy and and others not to sign the treaty Mm. and then in the treaty debates he was kind of very patronizing and he said a lot of things which they really didn't like so he he said things like Griffith and Collins didn't understand the treaty that they'd sold out the country and that it wasn't going to be a dominion at all it wasn't going to be independent even as much as Canada and Australia and then during the Civil War Childers was the head of Republican propaganda now for whatever combination of these reasons, they really hated Erskine Childers. Childers was captured in early November in his family home in, in County Wicklow, which is, you know, it was a big house, landed estate, but with in possession of a small thirty-two caliber pistol. So, people have said to me, you know, a thirty-two caliber pistol can be deadly. It could, but it's certainly not an offensive weapon. You know, it's at best a kind of a personal defense weapon. According to the Eamon de Valera, it had been given to Erskine Childers by Michael Collins as a present in earlier times and happier times when they'd all been on the same side. I'm not sure about that. That's, Eamon de Valera said that. But it's it's quite clear Childers is made an example of, right? Because there's plenty of people who were captured in action having actually killed National Army soldiers, having been in charge of barracks, attacks and ambushes and so on. The example I always use is Ernie O'Malley, who was captured the same week who had actually killed a soldier, you know, when he in this particular gunfight when he was captured. And he'd killed several others in other incidents as well, by the way. And O'Malley's not executed. So Childers is singled out. He has a kind of a summary military trial. His legal team appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, as I said, whatever the government needs to do to win the civil war is legal. His legal team appeals again. And while the appeal is pending, he's shot in beggar's bush barracks.
1: It was funny, I was just looking on Twitter during the week and I just saw some a picture from outside Crow Park where somebody had graffitied up on the wall revenge for Dick, Liam, Rory and Joe. And uh, that's what we're going to get into next.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Childers is shot. And, um, you know, on the other side, Liam Lynch, who's the head of the anti-treaty IRA, issues these orders saying that anyone who voted for the murder bill, which is what he calls the uh, Public Safety Act, will be shot and he says, free state supporters are traitors and their houses should be burned and so on. I mean, first of all, there's more executions after Childers. There's another uh, four shot in beggar's bush. But then Lynch's orders are acted on and uh, Sean Hale's TD was killed on Ormond Key in Dublin, coming out of the Ormond Hotel with Padraig O'Malley, who was the deputy Count Carla of the Third Doll. And in reprisal for that, as you've referred to, four senior Republicans who were captured in the four courts back in July or late June. 22, so Rory O'Connor Liam Mellows, Joe McKelvey and Dick Barrett, in, memorialised in a Republican poem, Rory and Liam, Dick and Joe, hence the graffiti they were taken out and shot and you know, this is probably the most notorious incident because there is no legality here, so they had been imprisoned back in the Courts in July they hadn't been charged with any offence they had nothing to do with the assassination of Sean Hill, so they're executed in retaliation for something they could have had nothing to do with and they're never charged with anything Um, there's just a piece of paper issued to them saying that you are being executed in reprisal for the murder of Sean Hales TD and of all the acts that the government committed in the civil war this is the one which drew the most appropriate from their own supporters you know in the press and in the Dáil for example the Labour Party I think Thomas Johnson the leader of the Labour Party said I think you've killed the free state you know by this act you know this abominable act you've killed the free state because Those were prisoners in your care and you've murdered them. He says there's no other word for it. But even like the Irish Independent, which is very pro-treaty in its line, it says, you know, we support the government because the government is the legal government. They can't go around doing things like this. You know, this is illegal. This is murder. And Kevin O'Higgins, as I referred to before in the Dáil, who's the Minister for Home Affairs, the equivalent of what today we call the Minister for Justice, says ultimately all government is based on force. He said, Richard Mulcahy, who holds the position at the time of Commander-in-Chief and uh, Minister for Defence, says to the effect, I, I suppose you'd be happy if more TDs were killed, that this is the only way to protect them. Uh, it's it's funny, I mean, Mulcahy really embodies in that statement the mentality of the IRA, if you like, the pro-treaty IRA who were in the National Army. They still have the IRA mentality that, you know, if they kill three of ours, we'll kill four of theirs. You know, it's it's something. It's an interesting thing that they take they take that into the Civil War, and a lot of the Civil War's worst atrocities, or some people use the word excesses, on the pro treaty side, most of them are
1: carried out by people who had been in the IRA before the truce. Well, that's the interesting thing as well is that a lot of the people who are executed are not prominent Republicans or didn't play a prominent role during the War of Independence, but those four men did and hold very prominent positions within the IRA, but when we're talking about executions and the Free State Cabinet discussing these executions, they're discussing executing comrades of theirs Mm. and friends and people who they had very close relationships with before the treaty was passed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and famously about the Mountjoy
0: executions, you know, this is always repeated, but it never ceases to shock. So Rory O'Connor, who had been behind the occupation of the Four Courts in the first place, was a good friend of Kevin O'Higgins. He was the best man at his wedding. And so... When I I think Cahill O'Shannon of the Labour Party said in the Dole, this is just personal vindictiveness. And O'Higgins gets up, clearly emotional, and he says, personal spite, vindictiveness, great heavens, this man was a friend of mine. So, you know, it does take a personal toll on them. And yet that's the only incident really where very senior Republicans are executed. Childers and the Ford Mountjoy out of 81 executions. Generally speaking, they go for small fry. And probably the reason is, is because they did not have personal ties to them. So this is an exceptional event. It's intended as the starkest reprisal possible. Otherwise, they're doing kind of exemplary executions. What the cabinet discussions about this in December 22, January 23, they show a very kind of ruthless vision. But the vision is actually, though, and this is something that I've been trying to push back on in the history of the Civil War, the history telling of the Civil War this year, is people always say Civil War... Was decided in its first weeks it was a cakewalk for the free state and that's not the case at all you know it would never have got so bitter if that was the case in december 22 the free state think that they're losing they think that the war civil war is bankrupting them that they can't afford to pay for the army the army is not up to the job of crushing the remaining resistance of establishing the functions of the state and they're quite clear about this they're saying Winning militarily is not the thing here. You know, we're failing to establish a working state. And unless we do this, you know, we're sunk, we'll lose. The Minister for Agriculture, Patrick Hogan, says the public will give up if the irregulars are allowed to continue their particular form of warfare, by which he means sabotage and destruction and so on. And so they actually up the ante for executions in 1923. So their single biggest month for executions is January twenty-three where they execute 34 people around the country and they do away with most of the legal framework around it. So previously there was a military trial, which, okay, was carried out in secret and so on. But from January 23 onwards, it just needs the signature of two army officers to carry out executions. And sometimes you didn't even really get that. So for example, in Tralee in January 23, Padio Daly, who had recently taken over command of the National Army in Kerry, his general officer commanding the GOC, He captures three Kerry anti-treaty IRA volunteers who had been involved in derailing a train where the two drivers had been killed. And there's a phone message, which is preserved in the military archives from O'Daly to the government saying, there are three very bad cases here who were involved in this outrage on the train in Tralee and want permission to shoot them. And the permission comes back and the next morning they're shot. So as far as I can tell, there's no legal process at all. There's O'Daly saying these were the men behind it. The government saying yeah go ahead and shoot them and that's it so whether they were or not is basically irrelevant it's done in this mentality of the reprisal and you see this around the country the other thing you see in twenty three is they're sentence a lot more people to death than they actually shoot so they sentence oh nearly five hundred to death in total of those eighty one we know now are shot by firing squad and about four hundred are put on death row as they'd call it in America so they're waiting to be sentenced but they're effectively kept as hostages now to give an example of this uh, up in Donegal they had captured the more senior anti-treatyites there three of whom were from Kerry actually because they'd been sent there in early 22 back in those days planning to do a joint offensive into Northern Ireland but by this point they're the enemies of the Free State they're in prison in Drumbo Castle and there is a Free State officer who was killed he's shot dead and the three of them plus another man from County Tyrone were taken out and executed and again they had nothing to do with the soldier who's killed it's a reprisal and afterwards they take Padder O'Donnell who is another senior Republican who had been a member of the four courts garrison but he's from County Donegal and O'Donnell in later years becomes very famous as the most prominent left-wing Republican. O'Donnell in many ways later reframed the whole anti-treaty conception of the civil war as kind of a class war and so on But in any case, O'Donnell is taken to Donegal and O'Donnell is sentenced to death. And the anti-treatyites in Donegal are told any more activity and O'Donnell is the next one who gets the bullet. And so this is the way the executions are used. Now, in some areas, in places like Wexford and Kerry, the executions probably just provoke more reprisals on the other side. Let's be honest, this does work. You know, there are lots of areas of the country where people say if we do any more, our lads in jail will be executed. So it does have a terrorizing function and it does work in a lot of the country. There's other big batches of executions in 23 in Athlone and in Chuam and in Ennis. Those are the, the biggest locations for executions rather than Cork and Kerry, interestingly, where the anti-treaty are strongest. And they're generally, again, in reprisal, and they but they're ferocious reprisals. Like they'll take uh, five or six men out of jail and shoot them. So the ones in Tumor in response to an attack on a barracks in Hedford, where there's three or four, I think, National Army soldiers killed. And so one of the, the ones in Ennis, I think, if I remember correctly, are the last ones done in the Civil War. And County Clare by that point had been fairly quiet for a long time. But, you know, something had occurred and it was just after the IRA order of a ceasefire, but before the dump arms order. And there's, I think, four or five executions in Ennis at that time. But that's the way executions are carried out in 23. They're carried out in a very cold-blooded, kind of systematic way in order to try to terrorise the anti-treatyites into calling off their campaign. Now, did it work? I think it has a terrorising effect, certainly, but it's much more common for people to be arrested than to be executed. So which of the two is more important? It's, It's hard to say. But the other thing is that it just provokes this tremendous bitterness and... One example of this is in County Wexford. This is a famous example. In Civil War history it is anyway. So four anti-treaty volunteers are executed by firing squad in Wexford town. And in the days afterwards, an anti-treaty column under a man called Bob Lambert, which was very active, in South Wexford came across four Free State soldiers or National Army soldiers drinking in a pub in Adamstown, County Wexford. One of them was shot and wounded, but the other ones were taken away and they were executed in reprisal for the ones in in Wexford, so this is what it develops into, like an eye for an eye. The fact is, the Free State has a lot more eyes. You know, they could do it a lot more.
1: The one thing that's interesting there, especially, is you're talking about the um, the dubious legality of the executions and how easy it is to get sanctioned to execute somebody, and they have this massive uh, amount of anti-treaty prisoners at that stage that they can pick from. Why do you still see so many? just murders of uh, anti-treatyites who are taken. Why don't they even go through the process of the kangaroo court? It's an interesting point. I mean, some of it comes down
0: to kind of the different mentalities involved. So you have the likes of O'Higgins, the Minister for Home Affairs, who was very insistent that if there's executions, they must be done in this legal manner, this legal framework, however dubious that is, as you're pointing out. On the other hand, you have... Commanders in the field, and people like patio O'Daly is the most extreme example in Kerry, who have another mentality, an IRA mentality. I think you can describe it as where it doesn't matter about legality. You know they kill our boys, we're going to kill four of theirs in response. So, like O'Higgins is actually quite upset by the famous atrocities that happened in Kerry in March 1923, where 20 anti-Treaty prisoners are are blown up in three different incidents. Well, no, not all of them are blown up, but there's 20 killed. Most of them are blown up in by these mines in reprisal for. A bomb at Knocknagoshal in North Kerry where five National Army soldiers were blown up. Owiggins is upset not that people are being killed but that they're being killed illegally which is interesting. Richard Mulcahy, his great rival inside the government, like there's a great deal of friction within the government, covers for the people involved. I don't think he's necessarily that happy you know but he covers for them because he is also in many ways of this IRA mentality. But there is another facet to it as well. So In Dublin particularly, and to an extent in Kerry also, you see a campaign of clandestine assassination. So they're seeking out people and they're just shooting them. You know, they're bypassing the middleman altogether. Some of them are reprisals. What goes on in Kerry is mostly just revenge. But in Dublin in 23, to decapitate the remaining uh, cells, if you like, or ASUs, the IRA would have called them, of the anti-treaty IRA in Dublin, people like Bobby Bonfield, Thomas O'Leary... Martin Hogan, and other who were some of the main players in the IRA in Dublin, they're sought out by plainclothes, usually CID, Free State Intelligence, and they're just driven outside the city and shot dead. They just cut out the middleman altogether. Mm. And there's a certain amount of government knowledge about this for sure. So certainly in the case of Bobby Bonfield, and Bobby Bonfield, by the way, was an active anti-treaty guerrilla and he'd assassinated a pro-treaty politician, Seamus Dwyer, by his own hand, among many other operations, but... Bonfield was arrested by the bodyguard of W.T. Cosgrave, who is the president, so what we'd call the Taoiseach, on Stephen's Green. Cosgrave witnesses his bodyguard, Joe O'Reilly, bundle him into a car, and the following day, Bonfield's bullet-ridden body is found on the Nace Road, in those days outside of the city. So, you know, there's revenge in the field, there's reprisals, but there is also a certain amount of just very cold-blooded campaign of assassination in 1923
1: but that's the thing too you're talking about people like Bobby Bonfield who have a prominent role in the anti-treaty campaigns but you're also seeing people being killed who are like Nafina boys and we're talking about like the red cow murders and stuff like that like what's the rationale for things like that you know
0: that's a slightly earlier phase of free state reprisals though I'd say the targeted assassination is right at the end of the civil war where in some ways they've kind of got their act together a little bit the thing about killing the Fianna in Dublin. So there's two pr- very prominent incidents. There's Sean Cole and Alf Colley in August 22, and there's the three teenagers who were killed at the Red Cow in October 22. They're basically acts of revenge, I think. So the Cole and Colley most likely, in response to the death of Michael Collins, the three Fianna boys in the Red Cow, Hughes, Holland, and Rogers, were putting up posters calling for the the killing of the murder guy. So the pro-Treaty intelligence. And they're captured by those exact same people. And there's this very strong narrative on the pro-treaty side, particularly among the IRA veterans, that they are the true Republican soldiers and the people on the other side are true and they're young lads who had never fought the British. And it really seems to have enraged them to find these young lads who hadn't fought the British fighting against them, I think. They're acts of revenge. I think there's no real sense in them, to my mind. One thing I want to flag dear, though, is I've talked a lot about the IRA and the pro-treaty army, the National Army, they are probably a majority in the officer corps in the National Army at the start of the Civil War. They're a minority even in the officer corps by the end of the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, the National Army has changed a lot. You have a lot of people who hadn't served in any army, but you also have a lot of former British Army, including former British Army officers. Now, Irishmen here, I'm talking about. But generally speaking, though, and I mean for all the opprobrium that Republicans naturally held for people who'd been in the British Army, not really in Ireland now, but in the British Army, and it's now served in, in the Free State Army or the National Army. The reprisal thing mostly, mostly is the province of the pro-Treaty IRA men. It, it took the Civil War very personally.
1: So how did the anti-Treaty IRA activists and leadership describe the effect that these executions were having on the morale of the anti-Treaty IRA volunteers and also the wider support movement?
0: Yeah, it really seems to have shocked them profoundly. So Liam Lynch had been um, moderate in the treaty split. You know, he was looking for reconciliation up until the Four Courts was attacked. But then even after the Civil War broke out, he, he he writes general orders saying, we can't fight this war as ruthless as we fought the British. You know, you can't kill unarmed soldiers. You can't kill informers and so on. And this execution's really changed him They really changed his attitude. You know, and he's... issues these increasingly bloodthirsty orders which fortunately were for the most part not followed so that every free state supporter is to have their house burned anyone who voted for the murder bill is to be shot all the TDs and so on and he constantly reiterates this he's constantly writing to the IRA in Dublin and Cork and elsewhere saying why aren't you killing the TDs you know that's one thing I mean it really increases the bitterness like people like Todd Andrews for example writes of a shock he said the reprisals he writes I can almost understand but the executions you know the cold blooded taking out of your former comrades and shooting them. That I could never forgive. So it's a long standing course of bitterness. But in the course of the civil war itself though, you really do find examples where people surrender to avoid their comrades being executed. So for example, in South County Dublin in Dawkey, there's a Dawkey column, believe it or not, which kind of wreaks havoc in that area in the anti-treaty IRA. It's hard to imagine guerrilla warfare happening in Dawkey, but there you go. They're cornered in a house in Glenageary towards the end of the civil war in april i think 1923 the leader paddy darcy gets away but he's informed that the ones who were captured there will be executed unless he surrenders now darcy does an interesting thing he doesn't actually surrender himself he gets the other remaining members of the column to surrender and bring in the weapons which is a death sentence in the ira by the way it's you know it's Hmm. a capital offense by the ira's own rules but he gets away with it. Darcy himself remains on the run, but he surrenders the rest of the column and their weapons, so the men are not executed. There's several other examples like this around the country. But to show the depths of kind of viciousness that the Civil War reached, there are also
1: a couple of examples of people who surrendered and were shot anyway. Well, this is fascinating. And uh, you talked about this in your recent uh, Irish Examiner column. Uh, <clears throat> can you go into that, please? Yeah, so there's two cases that I know of so there's a case in
0: county meath in march 1923 where two ira column leaders greeley and keegan one of them keegan i think is a false name his name is really meany if i remember correctly so they're captured after an armed robbery at Oldcastle, and they surrender they call on the men under their command to surrender um, well it's not what they're captured but they call on the men under their command to surrender they point out arms dumps and so on and they're executed anyway and interestingly the IRA also disowns them afterwards. So they're not included in the role of honour of the 77. Because maybe because they were captured doing armed robbery. But maybe also because they denounced the cause after they were captured. There's another case which is a real outlier in many ways. But it's, it's an interesting case. There's a man called Reginald Hathaway. Who was an Englishman. Who had been in the British Army in the War of Independence. And he had deserted. Now following the truce he joined the National Army. The Free State Army. And he deserted that as well. And he went over to the anti-treaty republicans. And he's a very active member of an anti-treaty column. Led by a guy called Tim Aero-Lyons. Now it appears actually that Hathaway had surrendered at some point in 23. And come in and signed the form. Which is pledging not to bear arms against the government. But then he went back into the field again with the column it seems. Now he's captured for a second time. When the column is cornered in a place called Clashmielkin Caves. Which is on the coast of Kerry. It's a very gruesome incident. So... Lyons is killed, several other members of the column are killed, there's two Free State soldiers killed. The three survivors, including Hathaway, were found to have signed the form earlier, that is, come in and surrendered, and then went out again and they're found wearing guard uniforms, so they had raided a civic guard, or what's now being called the Garda barracks, and taken their uniforms for clothes and so on. But Hathaway, to save his life, offers to go out and identify all the arms dumps in the area because this is how an IRA column operates by April 23 which is you know the arms are hidden and you just go and you get them when you need them so he goes around and he points out the arms dumps and he points out people in the area for arrest and this is all in the military archives it can all be seen and then they shoot him anyway so Reg did not manage to save his own life even by surrendering for the second
1: time no and it seems there'll be few tears shed on any side for from after all that I suppose. But yeah, but Reginald Hathaway is included in the Republican role of honour, nevertheless. So another name we should discuss as well is Liam DC and how that impacts towards the lowering of morale and the end of the anti-treaty campaign in the Civil War.
0: Yeah, so Liam, I, I probably should have mentioned Liam D C already in this context, but Liam D C is the very senior member of the anti-treaty IRA. He's the commander of the 1st Southern Division, which is Cork and Kerry. And Limerick Contemporary, and so the anti-treaty Heartland. And he is captured in February of 1923. And DC calls on the men under his command to lay down their arms and say, it's all for nothing. And by that, he avoids execution. So yeah, wasn't formally sentenced to death, as far as I'm aware, but the perception is certainly that dc avoids execution by calling on the men under his command to surrender and certainly if you look at the anti-treaty correspondence of the time they do blame dc for their morale collapsing so men started coming in to surrender and signing the form and so on and dc's version which he later lays out dc is eventually expelled from the ira for this in prison dc's version which he later lays out in his memoir is that he was convinced the civil war was a bad idea by this point and he would have done it anyway but it was just a coincidence that it saved his own life. Now, I think that the position of calling off the Civil War by February 23 is quite respectable, actually quite responsible thing to do. But certainly in the IRA, the view was that D.C. had done this just to save his own life. So he's expelled from the IRA for this after the Civil War.
1: So as we get to the end of the Civil War and the famous dump order, is that the end of the executions and the reprisals?
0: More or less. There's a batch executed in Ennis after the IRA ceasefire order. There's none executed after the dump arms order. It's not the end of reprisals. There's quite a few killings around the country after the ceasefire and after the dump arms order. And the most famous is Noel Lamas, the brother of Sean Lamass, later on the Taoiseach of Ireland. In Dublin, there's three or four. There's a guy called McEntee in There's a soldier called Joe Bergen. There's a number of killings in Kerry and Cork and so on. And elsewhere, most of these are revenge killings left over from the Civil War on the pro-treaty side. But there are also some pro-treaty troops killed uh, after the Civil War. And quite a few also who died in accidents. So their their weapon safety didn't get any better just because there was a ceasefire on. One of the interesting things, though, is there is a big effort in the civilian administration of the Free State after the Civil War to actually exercise legality. Because as we've discussed in the Civil War, this is of a very dubious nature. It's really anything you need to do to win the Civil War, more or less, you're gonna do. But afterwards, you see it change. You see them tightening up. You see them executing some of their own, actually, for criminal actions. So there's a former member of the National Army who was executed for a bank robbery in which he shot dead a CID officer in Dublin. There is a soldier executed by hanging, so for a criminal trial for killing an anti-treatyite in December 23 in Kerry, in Scartic Lynn. This is very much insist- insisted on by the judiciary. So it's saying you can't let your own side slide anymore or else, you know, legality will be a joke. There will be no legality. But you do see a lot of hangings after the civil war in the Free State by the normal criminal methods. And some of them are pro-treaty soldiers and armed robbers and so on. For some of the first Guardi who were killed, and were killed in the civil war were not killed by the IRA at all. They were killed by armed robbers but you also see another a number of hangings for murder so you see the biggest concentration of hangings in the free state is also following the civil war some of them are related to civil war violence but some of them are also this idea of clamping down on crime but this time it's strictly within the legal framework get doing away with this thing of reprisals and lawlessness among your own side
1: and finally to wrap up john how have the executions <coughs> been remembered in the popular memory
0: so this is a fascinating thing, you know. So one, one thing is that for the anti-treatyites, the biggest single reason why the Free State can never be legitimate is the executions. And the number of 77 you see quite early. And so you see, for example, in the Irish Times in 1924, the bodies are handed back. So at the time, the bodies were just buried inside prison grounds and barracks, wherever they were shot. They're handed back to the relatives in twenty-four, and they report 77 bodies handed back. So this is the number that's immortalised Dorothy McArdle, the Republican historian, records that number for posterity. There's also a, a book called 77 of My Own Said Ireland, immortalises it forever. Now, there's actually 81 people shot by firing squad by the Free State, formerly in the Civil War, but some of them were never claimed by the IRA. There's also cases of people who had broken the IRA's rules, like Hathaway, I mentioned, but also people in uh, leisure Ruffoli who were executed for armed robbery, who had actually been kicked out of the IRA. And they are welcomed back into the fold posthumously. But it becomes a big deal. I mean, the Republicans put a lot of effort in the 1920s into compiling lists of everyone who was executed and murdered, which is their term, in the Civil War. It becomes a central part of Republican kind of mythology in the Civil War. Now, of course, some of those people got reconciled with the Free State and they would say transformed the Free State in Fianna Fáil. But particularly in the militant Republican tradition, The executions are a token of why the treaty is wrong and why the Free State is wrong. Because the Free State murdered their own former comrades on the orders of the British, and so this can never be forgiven. So it's a central kind of totemic element of anti-treaty
1: Republican the point is always made that the Free State executed more Republicans than the British did. And it's true, they did. I mean, you know, when you're really looking through the figures, I
0: think the number of... IRA volunteers killed in the War of Independence and the Civil War is actually about the same. And those killed in reprisal by the British forces, the British Army and the Auxiliaries and the Black and Tans and so on, might even be more than the Free State. But certainly, yes, in terms of the official executions, four times as many by the Free State as by the British.
1: And we also have the fact that the anti-treatyites were far better at commemorating their victims than the government was and the pro-treaty side.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, you know, Anne Dolan wrote a book some time ago now pointing this out that the National Army dead died by their lights for a compromise. And so it's very difficult to commemorate them. They'd rather just forget them. Whereas the anti-treaty Republican dead are something, you know, you hold on to bitterly and they show that you're right in some way for holding to the true cause. So they're they're given that meaning in later decades. And, you know, things like the National Graves Association have... All these memorials, little memorials around the country to the anti-treatyites. And while there are some pro-treaty
1: memorials, there really aren't many. Well, thanks very much, John. That was very interesting. And if anyone hasn't read John's book about civil war in Dublin, now is the time to get a copy. So we have covered a lot of these issues before in previous episodes of the show that you can find on our website, Show.ie. The podcast of this and previous episodes of the show is available on all the podcast apps like iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you have a moment please rate and review the show as it really really does help us so you can follow us on twitter at irish history pod or on facebook facebook.com forward slash the irish history show and please let us know what you think of the show because we love to get your feedback and please share any of the episodes you find on your social media it really makes other people aware of the show and we really appreciate it too so john has also set up a patreon for the irish story so if you enjoy reading the articles on the Irish Story website, or our podcast here on the Irish History Show, please consider supporting us on the Patreon, and we really do appreciate that. So thank you very much, and there'll be a link in the show notes. So until next time, my name is Coghill Brennan, and on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening.
0: Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from
1: people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.